Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you've ever wondered what uh, the benefit of preaching through a text of Scripture all the way through like we do at Christ the Church is, it's that we don't get to avoid difficult passages of Scripture. And that's actually a good thing, because I don't think that I'd pick this passage to preach through on a given Sunday very often if it was just uh, my own my own choosing. Um, that's not to mean there's not wonderful things in it for us. So would you bow your head and pray with me as we come now together to God's word? Lord, we, uh, we do, we come before you, we remember that this is your word that we are handling this morning. This is the living word of God Lord, that is good for us and has so much to teach us. So Lord, would you right now be opening up our hearts to, to receive from you in faith, even from difficult passages? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at Paul's summary of the food sacrifice to idol section. That's from chapter 8, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians, all the way to 11, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians. And we saw in that summary and in that whole section, um, that there's a few things that he wanted for the church in Corinth. And he was teaching them that for them to be a community that is built up constructively, built up into something that is full of flourishing life and meaning and purpose, and wholeness in contrast to a society that was deconstructing itself and, and living at odds with one another, that they must live according to gospel freedom and not according to worldly freedom. And worldly freedom is a freedom from all constraints. It's the freedom to rule ourselves the way that we please. We talk about autonomous freedom today. Auto meaning self and nomos referring to law or to rule. We would self-rule. And this is the worldly freedom that we see around us. We see that worldly freedom destroys the church and robs God of his glory in 1 Corinthians. On the other hand, gospel freedom is freedom to freely sacrifice one's preferences, 
and one's rights in obedience to God for the glory of God and for the eternal good of all those around us in the church and even so that others might be saved to come to know Jesus Christ. It's a freedom to sacrifice. And it's this gospel freedom that Paul's been saying again and again and again throughout the letter in 1 Corinthians and something he's going to talk about still more. This gospel freedom that builds up the church of God and glorifies God so that all can be done to the glory of God. And that's important for us to recognize because as Paul begins this new topic in chapter 11, we need to realize it's not an isolated, uh, on its own little encapsulated section of teaching that's unrelated to what came before it. This is Paul's application of gospel freedom in the particular context of what the Corinthians are going through. Chapter 11 is sort of a chapter of applications of gospel freedom to the problems that the Corinthians were again having in the church. And his summary verses from the previous section, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 to 33, are as much a conclusion to what came before as much as they are a bridge and an introduction to now what we are talking about today. And those verses say this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, I realize that as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 to 16, that it is a passage that's difficult to understand. Trust me, I know that better than all of you uh, after this last week of, of study of this passage. I know that it is a very unpopular passage uh, in many different places. I also know that people, and maybe some of you, have bad experiences that are related to this passage and to different interpretations of this passage. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that as we look at this text together, that we'll come to realize that abusive behavior cannot in any way be justified from this passage. I pray that we'll come to realize that the differences that God has made between men and women are actually for our good and for God's glory. That they're good things from a good and loving creator God. And I hope that we'll come to realize and to see that if if you're struggling in your marriage this morning, as I often do in mine, that there is hope for us in this passage. That there is actually a word of encouragement for us. So I'm going to jump into this text Right now, and we're going to look broadly at three points. First of all, yet another problem in Corinth. (laughs) Yet another problem in Corinth, point one. Point two, Paul's instructions and his reasons. And then point three, differences to the glory of God. So look first at our first point, yet another problem in Corinth in verses three to five as we get rolling. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, the Bible is a book that was finished nearly 2,000 years ago. The Bible is a book that was written over the span of approximately 1,500 years in different cultures and different languages to ours. And that's not at all to say that it wasn't written for us. It's not at all to say that we ought to throw out portions of the Bible. 
or we should dismiss them. After all, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God, including this passage, and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not to say that we ought to throw this passage out, but it is to say that sometimes we can assume that we understand a passage of scripture when we don't. For example, one of the reasons this passage is difficult for us is because that word head means different things in different cultures. Most of us, I think, we read that word head and we think, oh, I know what that means. Head like headmaster. Head like the department head. Head like the boss. We think about head and we think about authority and control. And in this passage, that's actually partially right. It's partially right. There is a sense in which head communicates authority. After all, Paul says the head of Christ is God. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus Christ, um, in his earthly mission, when he was born humanly and entered into this world, that he was obedient to God the Father in everything that he did. Paul says the head of a wife is her husband. And we know that the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5 that a husband has a certain leading role of authority and a wife a supporting submissive role to her husband. Ephesians 5.22 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right. But, but, but though there is an element of authority and leadership communicated by head, there's a lot more to this word that Paul and the Corinthians understood that we miss because of our culture. And that's important. There's an English pastor and Bible scholar named Andrew Wilson that I've come to appreciate. And his comments on this passage, I think, are actually really helpful. He says this. He says, the heart of Paul's picture is not command and control like in a Western organization. It is honor and shame, like in an Eastern family. The head is not primarily the one in charge or even the origin or source of everyone else and everything else, although he's usually both. The head is the prominent, uppermost, supreme or preeminent one, the one whose reputation is either honored or shamed by the actions of others. That's the key point. The one whose reputation is either honored or shamed by the actions of others. So with that in mind, hold that in mind. And let's read the passage again from the angle of honor and shame as we think about that word head. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, namely Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, namely her husband here, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. All right, we're getting somewhere. By the way, this is going to be a teaching-heavy sermon because it's a complicated passage. We're getting somewhere. We're making our way through it. But I want you to, to keep all this in mind now as we just consider what was going on in Corinth and before we move on to kind of pull together these threads. Because we're going to come back to this in a minute, this idea of honor and shame. We need to realize that this is what was happening in Corinth. 
Corinthian worship to the glory of God. Praise him. It's, it was wonderful. It included both men and women praying and prophesying to the glory of God in their congregations. And prophesying is significant. It's a spirit-led exhortation and encouragement from the word of God to fit the need of the moment. It's this beautiful reality that both men and women were participating in in the church. So I think the first thing we need to realize is that we see in this passage a beautiful display of equality in the gospel in the worship services that were happening in Corinth. Both men and women rightly prayed and prophesied in public gatherings. By the way, we still believe in this Christ City Church. And we're going to take a long break uh, over the summer, but we're going to come back to chapter 12 in September and we'll talk more about spiritual gifts and we'll look more deeply into what it looks like for us to embrace the gift of prophecy as a congregation. We're going to get more into that in September. So far, so good. Praying's good. Prophesying's good for both men and women in the church. That's all good. But the concern that Paul had was that the appearance, the apparel, the way that this conduct was happening uh, for the praying and prophesying, that it was bringing shame on the respective heads that Paul's been talking about. And that even it damaged the Corinthian witness. So Christ City Church, I don't know if you think about this very often, but your appearance matters. I don't know if you know this, you might, you might be familiar with the idea of body language, but do you realize that you actually speak to one another through your clothing? Our clothes say something about us and to one another. For example, here in Vancouver, if you drive around the city, you probably will begin to figure out where people live based on what clothing they wear. There's very distinct patterns of clothing in different neighborhoods. And Lululemon, by the way, it just kind of fades out as you get further and further away from Kitsilano. <laughs> I guess except for tights. Tights are, at this point, a, a, global, a global, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Clothing item. <laughs> Fashion. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, in ancient Rome, it was the same. In ancient Rome, you communicated something by your apparel and by your appearance. And in Roman slash Corinthian culture, because Corinth was this Greek city that was rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BC, and it, it was very much a Roman city at this point, Roman Corinth had certain um, realities about their appearance. And if in Rome you were a man who wore long hair or prayed with a head covering, you sent certain signals culturally. The signals were that you kind of rejected who you were as a male, living a bit of an androgynous life. You signaled that actually possibly even you were on the prowl sexually for other men. And Paul's concern is to do that in a worship gathering, it brought shame and dishonor on Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, by letting hair down and not wearing head coverings, the, the women sent cultural signals that they rejected who they were as female and even signaled a certain sexual availability and promiscuity within their own culture. And that brought shame in this culture on their husbands. So Paul asked them to stop doing this. Look at our second point, Paul's instruction in verses four to seven. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, namely Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, namely her husband. 
since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, Paul says. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. You know, there's yet another cultural difference that makes this passage hard to understand. And here's where I want to come back to the honor and shame idea. Instead, we live in an individualistic culture and that makes this kind of a thing hard to understand. Because we can imagine that the things that we wear can bring shame on ourselves. I've been embarrassed by the clothing that I've worn. Perhaps you have been as well. I mean, I know some of you have been. But we don't think very much about whether our clothing brings shame on the people around us. Because that's not primarily how we think. But in ancient Corinth, one's actions mattered most because of how they reflected on one's family or on one's community. For example, there's a woman named Sarah Pomeroy. Uh, She's a scholar of classical antiquity, and she has a book with a scintillating title called Goddesses, Slaves, Wives, and Whores, Women in Classical Antiquity. And she wrote this. She wrote that, not a full quote, but she wrote that a woman's clothing in that society, that it actually reflected honor and shame much more on the men in her life than on herself. It says something about her husband. Husbands in ancient Corinth would compete with one another for status by the clothing and apparel of their wives. It's a very interesting thing. It's a concept that we don't understand from our Western and individualized world. So, when Paul writes in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. We need to realize Paul's not saying that women aren't to the glory of God and men are. It's not what Paul's saying. He's still talking about the way that inappropriate dress brings shame on one's head, namely husbands for women and Christ for men. Whereas when one lives fully and appropriately in one's role, one honors one's head, bringing glory to God. Again, Andrew Wilson has a helpful comment on this. I'm going to quote this for you in full. He says, notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that men bear the image of God and women do not. Or that men are superior and women are inferior. His comment that men are the glory of God while women are the glory of man has sometimes been taken that way, but does not imply this at all. I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples, from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honor to it. And the apple is the glory of the tree. And none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. See, I think what Paul is getting at is this. He wants the church in Corinth to reflect God's glory on earth in complementary ways as they bring honor to one another and living out their differences as men and women from one another in appropriate ways within their culture. Now think about all this, keep it in mind again, and think again about Paul's whole point in the preceding couple of chapters. And this makes still more sense for us. Because what Paul's been stressing over and over and over again is that we are free, but not merely free for ourselves. 
not merely free to do what we want to do, no matter what the repercussions might be. It says we're free and our, effect, our actions affect others. Our freedom, even how we dressed, must be used to build others up to the glory of God for the salvation of souls around us. So Paul corrects the Corinthians, stop bringing shame on your respective heads rather than honor. And he gives two reasons. The first reason is from creation and then the second from what the Corinthians would have understood to be normal in their own culture. Look at what Paul's saying now from creation. Paul says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Possibly the most difficult verse in the Bible to understand. <laughs> We're going to get into it a little later. This verse is hard to understand. Oh my goodness. Nevertheless, Paul says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So I think what's clear is this. Paul's arguing from these verses from the Bible story of creation of man and woman. And the Bible and the story of creation, it was man who was created first and woman who was created second from men and for men to be his helper, to complete that perfect making of humankind in male and female. But remember this. Paul began this passage with a profound affirmation of equality between men and women and their prayers and prophesying together in the worship gathering. And that means that, that no matter what we take from this passage, in no way are we seeing a God who shows favoritism to men over women here at all. See, God is a God who pours out his Holy Spirit equally on men and on women. There's this beautiful prophecy in Joel 2 that's fulfilled in Acts, the New Testament, as the Holy Spirit is poured out not on some people and not on others, but on the church of God, men and women. The teaching of the Bible is that God in his kindness and his mercy, he unites men and women to himself equally through Jesus Christ. Equally united to the Godhead through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. So when Paul thinks back to Genesis, Paul has a clear picture of equality as humans, male and female in the image of God, but who have different roles. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 24. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. See, Genesis teaches that God designed men and women to have perfect equality of worth, but different roles, especially in marriage. We see that in verse 24. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And as they partner together, they're to do so for the glory of God. We are to live, men and women, for the glory of God, differentiated appropriately as men and women. And it's amazing, this text. God's really clear that it was not good for man to be alone. Amen. I'm so grateful for a church, Christ City, full of the Holy Spirit, that's made up of 50% women. This would not be a very nice church to be part of if it was 100% men. It would also not be, by the way, a very nice church to be part of if it was the opposite. See, only in the creation of woman is humankind complete. There's a beautiful reality here, and it's this. It's that humankind is not male or female. But to be fully human is to be appropriately unified together as male and female. We need both. Both halves of this beautiful thing that God has made. And we need one another and we are dependent on one another. Women may have been created second, but Paul makes sure that we don't make more of this point than we ought to because he goes on and says, every man comes from a woman, don't forget. He reminds us of this in verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for men, so men, every one of you in the Corinthian church, don't forget, every one of you has a mother. And all things ultimately are from God. See, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they need to be careful not to blur the lines between male and female. He does that because we are only most fully and beautifully human when we honor one another's differences. When we live our respective roles and embrace who we are as God has made us. And we work together then in this complementary way, all for one common purpose, the glory of God. Do all things for the glory of God. On the other hand, when we use our freedom to blur the distinction between who we are as men and women, just because we want to do what we want to do, and we don't care what the implications of that action are, it's like this. It's like when you do photo editing. I'm going to get way out of my depth here. And when you do photo editing and you bring down the contrast, this beautiful image, right? And you bring down the saturation and you just take something beautiful and rather than have it be so fully beautiful because of its contrast and its differences, you make something bland and uninteresting and not beautiful to look at. Or to have another illustration, when we don't live fully in our differentiated ways as male and female, it's like going to a gourmet restaurant in Vancouver. Gourmet food is meant to be eaten and enjoyed where every flavor complements the others. Where the wine is paired with the meal that makes the meal taste better. And the meal makes the wine taste better. But because of the differences, think of how horrible it would be if you showed up at Black and Blue, somewhere like that, and, and you sat down and the, the meal came out and you took all of these distinct and complementary flavors to the glory of the chef and to the exaltation of your taste buds. And you took all of those things and you put them in a crock pot on your table. Thank you very much. I'm just going to sit here for a couple of hours and I'm going to enjoy this meal a lot. It destroys the beauty of what's there. 
And in the same way, we are to live our differences for the glory of God as men and women. That's what Paul cares about. So that in every way, our lives and our worship in this church will proclaim the goodness and the creativity and the beauty of the God who made us as male and as female. So I think this is what Paul's getting at in verse 10. This very difficult verse to understand. Verse 10 says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. I'm gonna just going to say, I don't know what that means. And after studying it, I still don't know what that means. The word symbol is not there in Greek. Um, it can be constructed several different ways. I'm not sure where to go with it. But I think the last part, which is even more difficult in some ways, actually isn't as difficult. Uh, because of the angels. Because of the angels. I think the bottom line here is Paul's talking about the significance of our actions in the church matter because we don't just worship by ourselves as individuals in this church. We're, just not, we're not just singing songs and doing individualistic or, or materialistic things here. Our worship is part of a heavenly body of worship that redounds the praise and the glory of God. I don't know if you ever think about that. What we do here isn't just an isolated thing. It's part of God's eternal cosmic reality for his glory. When we sing, the angels participate. When we act in ways to the glory of God, the angels see and they praise God. They worship the creator for his goodness, for his kindness. I think that adds weight to this passage and to what is going on here, even though there's a lot in this verse I don't understand. If you understand it, come and inform me afterwards. That'd be helpful. So Paul says we ought to be appropriately differentiated in worship as men and women because of creation. The second reason Paul gives uh, to obey his instruction is from the nature of things or from nature in the ESV translation. Judge for yourselves, Paul says, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given for her uh, to her for a covering. Now, we need to realize that that word nature isn't the same idea that Paul argued from creation earlier when he talked about Genesis. And actually, some translations would say the nature of things. I think what Paul's doing is moving from a creation point to a cultural point. He's meeting now the Corinthians on their own terms. And he said, guys, look, you already know that like, this behavior doesn't work. You know, it's disgraceful within your own culture. You shouldn't do it. But that means for us, when we look at this passage, we have to do some cultural transposition to understand it. Some cultural translation to understand it. Because the nature of things, the culture in Vancouver is different from the culture in Corinth. And Paul's teaching about male and female must be translated here according to the nature of things. So I don't think this passage teaches that men and women, uh, men that, that, that we should take our hats off when we pray, or women that you should wear a head covering when you come here to church. I don't think that's what this passage says, though I respect those that, that interpret that, that way, and we need to be kind and sensitive to those uh, who might take it that way. But I do think that this passage teaches we must maintain culturally appropriate distinctiveness in our appearance. That there is an appropriate way as the created image bearers of God as male and female to look like male and female within their culture. So we've looked at the problem in Corinth. We looked at Paul's instruction. Now let's turn to our last point, differences to the glory of God. 
As we've been saying, Paul's desire here all along has been for the Corinthians in this beautiful way to reflect their God-given, their God-given differences in complementary ways for this common purpose to glorify God. But even though we can see that, I think we realize pretty soon we start talking about men and women that we have a problem in our relationships together. Because differences, as we know, don't always result in mutuality and unity and greater glory for God. Very often, our differences produce incredible conflict in our lives. And in our sin, instead of glorifying God, we become selfish and competitive with one another in these destructive ways. And then rather to turn, rather than turn to God to save us, we start to try to fix the problems ourselves as we reject God's teaching for us. There's a few different ways that we do this. One of them is to reject the differences between male and female. I think that's one way that, that we try to solve the problems and our conflict of our sin in a negative way. But by doing that, this is great ironic thing happens. Because in rejecting male and female as God created them, we ironically create artificial boundary lines between male and female. And that's happening today. I think in some respects, there's a lot of confusion for young men and young women um, who might be interested, for example, if you're a young man in floral colors, maybe you have more of a sensitive constitution. Maybe you love poetry and the arts. And maybe there's some confusion now, am I really a male? Right? Or, or the reverse might be true. If I am um, a, a less uh, empathetic female and I love rough housing and playing with trucks, then maybe that means that I am not actually gendered in a female way. I think there's actually hope for us in this passage because the scriptures have so much of a bigger and more satisfying view of maleness and femaleness, the glory of God, than the narrow view of our culture. There's something wonderful and salvific here for us. Because in the scriptures, when you open the pages, you see men of God who write poetry, who express their emotions. As many of us, by the way, men from our own culture are uncomfortable doing. And if reading the Bible, honestly, there's a lot of men who express themselves in ways that, that we find are uncomfortable for us. Men who have deeply loving and intimate friendships with other men. Men who are affectionate in appropriate, beautiful ways with other men. Men who lead armies and exercise wisdom. Men who practice self-control as a virtue. Men who father families and freely give themselves in sacrifice for the benefit of others to the glory of God. It's a big view of masculinity in Scripture. And in a similar way, it's a big view of femininity in Scripture. When you open the pages of the Bible, you see women who exercise profound judgment, who give leadership, who pray, who prophesy, who sacrificially care for their children and their husbands and their communities, who courageously show respect and even obedience to, at times, foolish husbands as they entrust themselves to God. Women who go where the men fear to as they stand at the foot of Jesus' cross. Women who follow God to distant countries as they take their part in God's mission of redeeming the world that God has made. See, whatever we think about the differences between male and female, we must be very careful not to put artificial boundaries between maleness and femaleness that God has not put. 
I think on the other side, other side of things, if you're going to ask the question, what can, we be, what can we be very clear about? I think at least this. I think Christians ought to be clear about the goodness of the God who made women and only women with the ability to become mothers. See, God made women physically and psychologically suited to that end in complementary ways to men. And that's not to say that women are only mothers. That's to say that there is a biological at-root difference here that's important to acknowledge. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge the goodness of a God who made men and only men with the ability to become fathers. Men who are suited physically and psychologically to that end in ways that are complementary to women. Again, that's not to say that all men have to be fathers. It's just to say there's a difference here that's important to acknowledge at root. So whether you have children or you don't, whether you are married or you aren't, the differences between us as men and women are important and they are good. They are good to the glory of God. We're holy and fully human only when we live together, male and female, honoring one another, helping one another to live fully into who we are to the glory of God as a church. See, rejecting differences won't solve our problems and it won't give us a better life that we're looking for. You know, we try to fix the problem another way though. We try to solve the, the problems of the conflict between men and women also by rejecting the complementary roles God has given for our marriages. And this is maybe more common and more of a touchy point for us. I think rather than men leading their wives in sacrifice for their good, as per God's command in places like Ephesians 5.25, husbands give up their role of leadership. I think rather than taking a supportive role and working as helpers to their husbands for the glory of God in Ephesians 5.22, wives take the leadership away from their husbands at times. And then we do this because there's a lie that we believe in our culture that has to do with autonomy and this freedom for ourselves that we've been talking about all along. It's that a perfect egalitarianism of roles, an equality of roles, that it will set us free to a flourishing life. We think that when we get rid of order and structure, we'll finally have the happy and the good life that we long for because we don't like submitting to anybody. Submission is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but I promise you it's the least popular one. But you can't have an army made up of generals. You can't have a country made up of prime ministers or anarchy ensues. And in God's providence, it's the same in our marriages. See, the problem in our relationships with one another isn't creational difference or order. It's a sinfulness that is selfish and self-serving. But there's good news for us because where sin gets hold of our hearts to make us reject all that God has made, to make us turn inward, to use all the things, even our relationships together as men and women for ourselves. Jesus has come. And he's come to set us free from sin. He's come to free, to, come to free us and empower us to live sacrificially in love for others. He's come to show us a better way. Because Jesus alone is the perfect model for men and for women, for husbands and for wives. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. As I said earlier, head carries a connotation of authority here. And in this profound verse, we see that even Jesus Christ in his human life on earth took a submissive role to God, his head. I think that we need to let Jesus 
redefine that word for us. Rather than reacting to it as we do, let's look to scripture to see what submission looks like in Jesus' life. And let that infuse our understandings of all of our lives. And let what we see here change us. Because Jesus' submission wasn't like a child's to his parents. It wasn't like a slave to a master. It was as God incarnate in the perfect liberty and freedom that only God can have. Willingly entering a place of ordered relationship for our salvation and for the ultimate glory of God. Jesus' submission was willing. I'm not sure how the deliberations of God, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm not sure how they work together for eternity past, but I do know that there's one will in God. That means that Father and Son and Holy Spirit agreed together. Jesus wasn't compelled and thrown at, you got the short straw, Jesus, down you go. But there is a mutuality of love and honor and agreement together for the mission of God, the salvation of us, and the glory of God. For every man and woman in the church, this Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, of differentiation but order, of perfect unity and honor and love, it's our model to the glory of God. And astoundingly, for those of us who are married, we see something mysterious and powerful in the scriptures because we see that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins is both the model for the husband's leadership as well as the model for the wife's helping role. It's the same. Here in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it is Jesus who is the model for submission because Jesus chose to obey the Father and give up his life for God's glory and our salvation. And wives, wives of Christ City, It is the spirit of Jesus who dwells within you. Praise him. He's there within you to free you from living merely for yourself in your marriages. He's there to empower you to freely take a joyful helping role in relationship with your husbands, the glory of God. And husbands, in Ephesians 5, it is Jesus who is our model as the perfect husband. He freely chose to use his role to lay down his life in sacrifice, dying on the cross for the eternal good of his bride. Is that how we lead our wives? The spirit of Jesus is within us to free us from living for ourselves. He's there to empower us to lay our lives down in sacrifice, not in selfishness, for the good of our wives. I think there's hope for our marriages in a passage like this one. But it's hope that begins with recognizing what marriage is for. Because friends, marriage is not a partnership that's professional, where my personal goals and your personal goals are alternatively pursued. Marriage exists for the glory of God. I want to encourage you to sit down with your spouse or your fiance or the person you're dating this week to talk about what your vision for your married life is. What is your, and vision is a bigger word than goal, by the way. Not talking about a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. I'm talking about the vision for your life. What are you living for? How are you living for the glory of God together as a married couple? 
Where do you need to repent of using your marriage just for yourself? Where do each of you need to grow in your respective roles as husband and as of wife in imitation of Jesus? There's so much good news and so much mercy here because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you have freedom to face even the biggest, most selfish, destructive failures in your marriage with the hope that Jesus' mercies are new for you every morning. That he can redeem what's there. That he loves you, forgives you, and takes what has been profoundly broken and use it for his glory. It's the kind of God that he is. I want to end with this. I don't think there's a better illustration for Christian marriage than dancing. When you watch famous couples dancing together, you wouldn't know unless you were told that one of them is leading and one of them is following. You wouldn't see the conversations that went on behind the scenes and the way that they worked out and planned this beautiful act of choreography that exalts each partner, that works out to this incredible, beautiful, and God-glorifying thing. All you see are the results. Just like Jesus is not subordinated and compelled into a place of slave master submission to the other members of the Trinity, Christian marriage is not subordination. It's like dancing. There is order to the glory of God. So whether as man and as woman, whether as husband or as wife, this week, let us use our freedom, Christ City, to honor one another here in this church. To lay down our lives, to serve one another, to submit to God as we strive to live for his glory in every area of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a hard passage. But Lord, I think it's a beautiful passage. I think we catch even a glimpse of the beauty of the Trinity in this passage. As you, Father, Son, and Spirit, dance together for your mutual glory. God, would you give us a vision to embrace who you've created us to be? with mutuality of respect and love and self-giving, with a willingness to embrace differentiation of roles for your glory. Lord, for those that, that aren't married, would you bless them and increase in them a vision to live as male or as female as you've made them? Would you cause us as a church to support one another? Lord, this place would be a redemptive place in the middle of Vancouver where people would see something of the new creation that you are doing in Jesus. They would see humanity as it was meant to be as we all together image Jesus. And we ask this for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.